Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Mara Dykstra, who's Assistant Professor of History at Caltech, although soon to be joining Yale in autumn 2023. And she'll be talking about her new book, Uncertainty in the Empire of Routine, the Administrative Revolution of the 18th Century Qing State, which was published last year, 2022, by Harvard University Asia Center. It can seem at the moment like we live in an age of global uncertainty, and this is perhaps at least partly a result of power being distributed more widely than it was during the unipolar 1990s or the bipolar Cold War before that. Having multiple competing centers of influence, it seems, can pose a lot of questions about how the world system should be running. But as Mara Dykstra's new book shows, even having one relatively uncontested pole of political power does not guarantee certainty. Indeed, it can be precisely as an imperial centre goes looking for surety that the opposite ends up coming to the fore. This, as Dykstra shows, was just what happened during the rule of China's Qing dynasty, which having established itself across the old territories of the Ming and beyond from the mid-17th century, got down to the business of fine-tuning its administration. A range of reforms, including some very subtle ones, were enacted in order to routinize and monitor the operation of the vast imperial bureaucracy, and ultimately also to discipline those responsible for running it. During the reigns of the big three Qing emperors, Kangxi, Yongzheng, and Qianlong, these evolving measures were relatively successful in granting the central authorities in Beijing greater oversight. However, it turned out that the imperial centre did not always like what it saw, and the more it got to know about activities in the provinces, the more it came to doubt whether all was well across the realm. Many people are familiar with the image of the ailing and sclerotic late Qing and its collapse amid the predations of foreign powers and domestic uprisings. But as this exciting new book shows, as far as the Qing rulers themselves were concerned, things were out of joint long before the invasions and rebellions started in earnest. So here to tell us uh, about what was going on and more is the author herself. So I'll say, Mara Dykstra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ed. I'm quite happy to be here. And uh, well, great to talk to you about this uh, extremely engaging and, uh, as we were just discussing off air, uh, detailed book, but uh, one that uh, rewards the delve it offers into uh, the you know high Ching and uh, all, all that it's uh, involved. Um, but before we get on to some of those details, or as many as we can remember, uh, I'll say to you, uh, what uh, kind of brought you to this point? How has your sort of academic background unfolded so far? I, I would say that my path to this book project was a rather circuitous one. I had never worked in a central state archive until I started researching this book and rather began my career as a local historian, like many other students trained in my generation. I was very excited at the, the picture of local governance that county level archives allowed us to start depicting from the 1990s forward. But over the course of working on my dissertation, which was actually about 
disputes between merchants in the city of Chongqing using the, the infamously rich Baxian archives, I realized I had a lot of questions about where the state was. To what extent did what I understood about the state by looking at the Qing from the county level in the frontier on the southwest resemble or really have anything to do with the state as broadly conceived? And so initially, I just wanted to understand a little bit how in the 19th century, the local administration related to the other layers of the imperial state. I just had a few, I think, I thought minor technical questions about the relationship between local and central administration. And when I arrived in Beijing to start to do some of this preliminary research, I realized that the Qing state knew a lot less about itself in the beginning than I assumed. And in the course of just trying to plot out that history, I realized that as a field, we had not yet uh, explicitly conceived or organized this history of the state learning about itself, which it turns out, as you mentioned, had pretty serious implications for the political relations inside of the Qing Empire. Great, great. And uh, you mentioned, uh, I think, in the kind of preface to the book and the, the early pages that uh, this was actually a sort of separate or distinct project from your doctoral research. Um, did it have nothing at all to do with your initial work in these Bar County archives? Or, you know, were you, was there anything that fed directly? Or did you just decide to embark on something totally different? <laughs> Uh, this is a question that many of my mentors frequently ask me, uh, which is when I might ever get around to publishing the dissertation, because indeed, this this project uh, does not even share a single footnote with the dissertation, not a single sentence, uh, certainly some words <laughs> they have in common, but otherwise, it was just a completely new adventure that I embarked upon. And the way that I conceive of this book is as a preface to the dissertation work. And I would, I would say that ultimately, I hope in future writings to work back around to the history of local administration, urban organization, dispute resolution, and administration at the county level in the 19th century, but I just had a few things I had to get out of the way and explain first, and it just so happened to take the form of a book. Great. Well, no, that's uh, that's, that's fantastic and uh, uh, amazing to be to have been able to just spawn a completely new thing uh, whilst you know staying staying in the game uh, and all the rest. I think uh, many people, you know, in uh, academic work would, uh, would would marvel at uh, such a feat. So that's uh, that's brilliant. Um, well. I guess uh, we'll kind of move on to the uh, to the the project itself then, um, and uh, I guess having learned a bit about you know at least at least how it came about, um, you actually begin the book though also with a lot of kind of uh, contextual material, which is very rewarding I think for uh, for historians and people looking for this kind of uh, rigorous work, including four entire pages on citing conventions and how you're actually using the archives. There's a lot of layered ways in which this is a sort of you know, archival book about a, an archival empire archiving itself or, or, or something. Um, but you also explain in quite a lot of detail in a prologue where you see things fitting uh, in, in relation to this broader field of, of Qing history, work on the Qing archive. So could you say something about the sort of 
place of your work uh, as as you see it in what is you know a quite um, recently uh, expanded field. You know, Qing history as a, as a as a as a domain of Chinese history has been one that has been really radically altered. You might suggest in recent decades. So, how does how does your sort of project fit into this bigger picture? I was quite surprised when I started sharing this work with scholars who are not China historians, how little they knew about the relationship that the China history field has to its own archives. Uh, because those of, those of us who are not a part of the discipline of Sinology, uh, but maybe study other early modern empires, uh, were quite unaware of the fact that our field was fairly recently revolutionized with access to archives, that it was really only in the very late 70s, but particularly in the 80s and the 90s, that scholars of Chinese history started incorporating archival sources. And so what this means is that as a tradition, Sinology and Chinese history have only embarked on a conversation with the archive in the last couple of generations. And we see how pronounced the impact of that conversation has been on reconceiving the history of the Chinese empire from the ground up, because indeed it was the exploitation of these local county level archives that really overturned a lot of received wisdom, especially in scholarship published in the the nineties and the first decade of the two thousands. And I think the way that I would situate my work is that it's very much inspired by the critical perspective that historians gained on the empire by exploiting these local county level sources, but it takes those questions back to the central state. And so for the last generation or so, many of the questions that we had about the Chinese empire really turned to local society. They were really curious about how subjects in cities or in in the countryside experienced the empire. And I would say that now I'm kind of returning to some of the bigger classical questions. And indeed, unlike many historians in my cohort, I rely heavily on state compilations like the veritable records, dynastic history, all of these sorts of materials that have become passe with the revival of interest in archival sources. But I pair that with uh, critical questions about how that central archive worked. So I think it fits in quite well with the zeitgeist of the previous generation, but with a new focus. Great. Yeah. Well, uh, I think I think you're right there that it it manages to to, to span maybe a, a variety of of different sorts of um, you know material kind of interests in uh, central archives or, or central kind of compilations of records and and the, and the local too. Um, the Qing, it seems, in your portrayal was uh, a dynasty particularly preoccupied with its own archive and a process of sort of archiving itself as it went along, but also of getting rid of stuff that I guess wasn't uh, to its view germane to, to the purpose uh, of, of, of rule. Um, this might be an unfair question, but I mean, uh, does it seem more that the that, that, that Qing was more interested in this kind of uh, auto-archival work than than other dynasties were? Is, is, is it possible to say these things? I mean, there's some very general understandings that people have of Chinese dynasties, the next dynasty writes the last dynasty's history, and, you know, this successive line of, of, of record-keeping and documented history and so on. Uh, is, is, that, is that a fair question? And if it is, 
can we say anything about whether the Qing was more or less preoccupied with archival work than any other? This is a question that preoccupies a lot of my attention these days, actually. It strikes me as something particular to the field of Chinese history that for a very long time, indeed, at least back to the age of Huang Zhongxi's critique of Ming despotism, we have paid particular attention to the relationship between communication and authority. This is inherent in the tradition of synology. And I think that this has something to do with the role that communication and text has played in the formation and governance of Chinese empires dating at least back to the Qin, but in some cases, depending on how you conceive of the archive, also in the Zhou. And so on the one hand, I think there is a very long-lived tradition of thinking about and using textual materials to unify an empire that's actually very diverse on the ground. But on the other hand, there is something about the Qing dynasty that's really distinct from the Ming. And the way that they tackle the problem of the archive is conceptualized more fully in a more standardized fashion and is tied into real-time policy developments in a way that I would contrast very starkly with the Ming dynasty. And on the Ming, I would very much recommend as two sort of counterpoints or pieces of comparison Chelsea Wong's Columbia dissertation on Ming communication and Devin Fitzgerald's Harvard dissertation on the Ming open archive, both of which really typify how much the Ming was doing in terms of archival management and engagement, and yet without the sort of concerted policy attention that we see in the Qing dynasty that really distinguishes that last empire. Great. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we're still in the realm uh, of the question that I asked about, you know, very broad understandings of, uh, of, of Chinese history at large, um, then I guess the, the kind of something striking about the fact that this this uh, Manchu ruled, uh, quote unquote, conquest sort of alien dynasty uh, was was sort of more formalistic or had had uh, properties that that were more yeah, systemically kind of preoccupied with text and so on than than the, the kind of uh, heartlands uh, central plains Ming dynasty before it's you know I, again we're, we're sort of erring into dangerous essentialist territories about step people not being able to handle these things and of course there's hundreds of years involved over which people can learn how to do things and in lot and indeed lots of central plains people involved so there's lots of caveats but but yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't know whether that uh, has been something that has struck you. No, I think this is incredibly important. When I was studying local history in the context of Chongqing, I always looked for accounts of the city from people who were not native to it, because it's often the case that people who live in a system won't describe or conceptualize the most essential elements of the systems in which they live. And in many ways, I think that the problems of translation, and by translation, I mean both the strict sense of linguistic translation, but also the sort of broader sense of transforming and adapting practices across uh, fields of praxis that we see in the Qing dynasty 
both is an aid to historians who will finally find historical actors writing about and providing evidence about things that they don't in the previous dynasty and are a sort of conceptual motor uh, when an invading court sits down and asks what to do with this bureaucracy, you get the sort of programmatic answers that you wouldn't have when these changes are happening endogenously. And I think it's also incredibly important and uh, worth remembering the extent to which it was Ming officials and Ming advisors who had such a strong hand in shaping many of the Qing-specific policies of relating to the bureaucracy. So I would always advise students of especially early Qing history to think about these, these early moments of the empire and conquered Ming territories in the context of late Ming debates, many of which were about text. Great, great. And that kind of falls, I guess, within a... Uh, a, a popular device of, of trying to recognize dynastic change or any other sort of notionally cataclysmic single date related event is not not nearly as uh, you know um well cataclysmic or uh, or indeed divisive as, as it might you know initially appear um so that's uh, well that's fantastic thanks mara for, for that kind of uh, you know wander wander through your own uh, textual prologue there and uh, you know i think it's uh, it's it's actually not not abstract it's not uh, purely contextual it's at the core of, of of what this entire book is about in in many regards so it has an, itself an interesting relationship to the the body chapters which we'll now kind of move into or at least into into the intro so uh I've already alluded in the in my own little preamble to the kind of question of uncertainty, and and you know it's in the title of the book, so we should probably uh, get onto it at some point. Um, you kind of uh, basically come up with this, or, or, or kind of make this very uh, pithy point that em- empires are inherently uncertain. So, uh, to ask an open-ended question, what do you mean by that? And uh, yeah, how do you how do you conceive of uncertainty as a sort of category of thing in this? I actually especially appreciate the way that you that you frame this. It strikes me that when many of the people that I hear talking about uncertainty in the current world confront this concept, they see it as a space of failure or an error or a lack of faith in something that we ought to have faith in when we're uncertain about the news or we're uncertain about voting counts, we're expressing a feeling of anxiety about something that we thought we ought to be able to rely on. And I think when we conceive of the early modern or the pre-modern imperial context, uncertainty was baked into how these institutions operated because the idea of information representing a fairly uniform or easily quantifiable reality was a useful fiction, but was not expected by anyone to actually reflect what was happening on the ground. And to me, this is definitional of an empire. And as I mentioned in a little more detail in the introduction, it's important to understanding how empires make the choices that they do about how they work. But because not knowing something will always be a barrier 
to controlling it or solving a problem, it's also very natural for people sitting at the top of these systems to want to confront the sources of these uncertainties. And what I propose in the book is that it was hard for anyone in the Qing to realize that when they thought they were just confronting possibly very small problems of not knowing or not being able to understand or not being able to act, they were actually tugging at the tapestry that wove together the entire bureaucracy. And so simply by searching for more information, they slowly transformed the way that the state connected to itself. And by changing those connections, they changed the structure. Great. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a, you know, it's, 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 it's a real strength of this book that there's this uh, beautifully elegant story there that you, you have just encapsulated that can be told along those threads, basically in, in you know, in kind of uh, exquisite detail and uh, a level of sort of intense attention to detail that, that really, in some ways, I think, reproduces the, the activities of those who were <laughs> engaged in that search at the time. Ed, um, are you comparing me to a Qing bureaucrat? <laughs> Uh, I I don't know enough about Qing bureaucrats except from your book, so we're we're, get, we're getting into dangerously recursive territory. So I, I think I I, I would withhold comments, uh, but you know, you I won't I won't stop you from saying you've been compared to one if that if that aids your you know uh, arrival at Yale maybe I don't know, um, but but uh, I guess uh, then on on the sort of topic uh, that you just uh, mentioned there about uncertainty being interpreted as a sign of sort of um something something wrong you know things things uh not being kind of uh, as they should uh you say that basically ching um uh kind of uncertainty in the ching uh, has been interpreted by and large as a uh, emblem of uh, imperial failure in some way that that the kind of um efforts efforts to reduce the uncertainty taken by the ching uh imperial authorities have been seen as as something that that represents failure how how then can we kind of recast this in the in the Qing context um if if, if that's not too close to what you've what you've already said i mean why is it not a symbol of, of the failure of the Qing that uh, that they went after these problems it seems to me that one way to summarize the last half century or so of the study of late imperial Chinese history was that this was a few generations of scholars asking and proposing reasons why the late imperial Chinese state failed to achieve the specific forms of efficiency and control that we associate with modernity. Um, my generation and I think current generations of scholars really turned away from these questions because of our conviction that assuming a teleology of modernity could no longer produce anything of inherent value. But it strikes me that it's worth asking not whether or not the Chinese state was efficient by some external metric, but rather if we conceive of the Chinese state as an organization or perhaps more appropriately, a set of overlapping institutions with different practices and different objectives, it might be worth asking, what are those objectives 
and how was it designed to fulfill it? And how did it measure its own efficiency? And in the process, if we define efficiency as focus on achieving a certain objective, what did it fail to measure about itself? And one of the things that the Qing was very interested in measuring was the extent to which its own delegates, the officials of the empire, were behaving according to the statutes and regulations of the dynasty. And one of the things that it didn't observe, which I spent the length of the monograph spelling out, was the extent to which the information that it was collecting changed over time. And so you have this irony at the center of the book that at the same time that the Qing state becomes uniquely able to understand exactly what all of its officials are doing, it somehow at the same time becomes convinced that it knows less than it ever has and that there's something secret that it's not able to get at. Hmm. Great. Well, you kind of do trace in the uh, first part of the book this kind of um, trajectory uh from it through the sort of early Qing, uh, including right from the you know the Shunzhi Emperor, kind of right at, right at the beginning, who seemingly was responsible for carrying out various ambitious reform measures as a child, or at least uh, other people were uh, around him, um, and then through uh, through through Kangxi and eventually onto Yongzheng and Qianlong. So, could you sketch in very broad terms, you know, what some of these efforts were, and exactly what this sort of um, you know, project of, of developing bureaucratic management, how you might characterize that in, in, in concrete terms. Absolutely. Um, although I would, I would make one note because you remark uh, on the use of the Shunzhi Emperor. And it's very important to me when people read the book that they understand that as a historian with a background in economic history, I'm really interested in how people participate in making rules and following rules and responding to rules in a, an institution that has its own its own life. And so for me, it really doesn't bear on my work uh, the extent to which any of the individual actors knew what they were doing or even wanted to know that they were doing. And so I, I do want to be very careful in my assertions about the extent to which I assign any particular agency to any human being because the the, the scope and the, the color of it only really becomes apparent if we zoom out, not only to a large number of people, but over time. And this goes directly into the primary question that you asked, which is what happens? What are the mechanisms of this change? And at the heart of it, it's quite simple. It's that the Shunzhi Emperor, even as a child, <laughs> recognizes that you can't control an empire if you don't know what's happening. So in the book, I think the most poignant example of this is when uh, the Shunzhi Emperor is, I think, about 13 years old. He learns that there are untold numbers of Qing subjects being held in prisons. And he realizes that that could be the case because there's no way that the Qing is currently measuring the numbers of people being detained in the jails throughout the empire. And so that's the first step of the cycle is when the Qing state, either the emperor or the councils or administrators at any level, realizes that, that there's a problem. The first thing that they will always do is collect information about that problem. Once information is collected, the next step, quite logically and intuitively, is to create regulations 
based on that information. So once you realize that there's a problem, you collect information to understand the nature of the problem, and then you reflect on that and you decide what policies you're going to adopt to address it. And the third step, and this one is where it gets kind of interesting, is you have to hold someone accountable for enforcing those regulations. And I refer to that as review. And what I mean by review is you have to require that some supervising official supervises and then holds accountable the subordinates in the offices below him. And the thing that's really important about this process and why it links to the extent to which I am or am not interested in the motivations or intentions of individual actors is that they're removed from one another in time, in space, and in scale, sometimes such that an actor won't even realize that the information that they're getting or the regulations that they're producing are related to a specific action in the past. So because these cycles take a long time and they overlap with one another, they're almost orchestral in their relationship and they're not so much easily related to a simple story of cause and effect. And that's what I think is interesting about it. Right. And I guess also you're covering... So such a temporal span here, uh, decades, indeed centuries, that uh, the kind of sense, the kind of panoptic uh, ability of anyone to have a clear sense of the entire thing is maybe also uh, limited, especially, I guess, in in, in certain localities. Um, does this explain why uh, some of these changes, especially the kind of subtler ones that you mentioned during the Yongzheng period, the 1720s and 30s, have been overlooked? Is, is, is this sort of... Uh, you know, you're, you're kind of drawing attention to this uh, largely, um, you know, in response to to an ignoring, ignoring of these things based on that sort of uh, that subtlety and that kind of non-intentionality about them. That's a genuinely interesting question. I mean, it seems like the book is uh, is aimed at uh, identifying things that have been ignored, as I guess many many books are. But <laughs> I just wondered whether you had any sense of what it was about the the sort of historiographical uh, predilections that had led to that uh, those oversights uh, hitherto. You know, I'm I'm very interested in the relationship between intended and unintended consequences, and in my work. I always try to take my actors and my sources seriously, but the thing that makes me a historian and not just a historical actor is that I have the advantage of time and space (laughs) to reflect on what people thought they were doing. And so I think the, the elements that I'm playing with in my work really are these sorts of playful questions that I have about the difference between what people thought mattered and what I can identify as mattering. And so what happened very often in writing this book is I would be keeping track of regulations. I mean, I read thousands of pages of Qing administrative regulations, which is not really a fate that I would wish upon any other (laughs) human being. And on that track, I could see with perfect clarity why one regulation would lead to the next, everything sort of seemed to make sense. But then on the other track, I was watching how the archives behaved. And the relationship between the seemingly sensible track of increasing regulation and the sometimes surprising track of what is and isn't appearing in the archives is really where 
I allowed the evidence to point me in the direction of specific periods in time or specific changes in the documentary evidence that I then had to go and find the cause of. And I was extremely surprised to learn that some of these paperwork reforms of the Yongzheng Emperor, which didn't really make that big of a splash in the documentary evidence, are actually the the locus of these later changes. And that, to me, was one of the things that was most rewarding about writing this book, is learning to appreciate something that I myself had overlooked for several years. Great, great. Well, then then we maybe are back to you being a Qing bureaucrat again, or at least uh, you know, <laughs> in, uh, embodying, embodying the tedium of, uh, of uh, routinized document reading. Um, but on, on, the, on the topic of documents, and to kind of round out, you know, the sort of scene setting, I guess, that forms much of the introduction, um, was text always the answer, I guess, or the, at least the answer that was devised by those trying to, you know, solve, solve these problems? You basically, uh, I think, you know, argue that that sort of introduction introduction of more text at more at more uh, levels of uh, focus and uh, you know around more sort of um, uh, bureaucratic procedures was kind of what changed both context and uh, and indeed sort of um, uh, observation of it. Uh, but what was it the case over this long span of time that sort of yeah more 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 text was always sort of the solution that was proposed? This is another excellent question. And in fact, this is the main difference between the Ming and the Qing dynasty information regimes. In the Ming dynasty, the imperial throne relies very heavily on censors who are dispatched by and granted authority on behalf of the throne itself. So in the Ming, if the central state suspects that something is happening, something is amiss, the primary recourse will be to send an individual to investigate on behalf of the throne. And in the Qing, as well documented by several of my my colleagues, we do have uh, the institution of extraordinary forms of communication between Qing emperors and their Manchu informants in the provinces, who are often both officials and bondsmen to the imperial clan. So we do have some people who have a sort of personal connection to the imperial throne who might be asked to look into something. But what we do not have is an independent sensorial mechanism constantly operating in the provinces. Officials can still be deputized by the throne to go to a specific locale and investigate a problem, but increasingly from the Yongzheng period forward, all of the practices that used to be associated with supervision of this independent censorate are in fact wrapped into the documentary and reporting practices of what will become understood as a province. And I think that Qing historians often forget that provinces were still being formed even in the early Qianlong era. The things that we think we understand about how a province worked, many of them are actually the creations of the Qing, and they have precisely to do with really the bureaucratization of territorial and official relationships inside of the conquered Ming Empire. And so this role that text plays has very much to do 
with a sort of a bureaucratic set of solutions for managing the conquered Ming territories that the Hongwu emperor and his Ming successors will issue constantly. So this is a sort of comparison between the Ming and the Qing dynasties that is extremely important. And I don't go into a lot of depth in this book talking about, but I hope that other scholars would pick up on why and how the provincialization of bureaucratic politics in the Qing matters, because it has everything to do with text, because the province is a bureaucratic unit and the tool and currency of bureaucracy is language. Mm. So yeah, it's interesting then that uh, yeah the generation of of text has this sort of spatial uh, or, or you know eventually geographical uh, effects essentially. Um, I mean, out of curiosity and ignorance, what then were these formations, if indeed they existed at all, pre-Qing? I mean, how were these co- these collectivities brought into being as provinces? Were they just w- w- was was the county the primary unit or were there kind of military divisional spaces or yeah what, what was the pre-province situation in, in many of these places when they well, before they got created course, um the classic historian's answer is to understand the one thing you have to understand the thing before it so you've just asked me about what was before the Qing, which is the Ming, but to understand the Ming, you have to you have to at least look to the yuan uh, and before but anyways let's start with the yuan in which case we have an imperial authority where regional power is highly centralized. The authority of the individual in charge of the secretariat, which is the Yuan dynasty analog to the province, uh, is supreme. And the relationship between that branch and the central branch is extremely intimate. And the Ming uh, contrasts itself with this Yuan model by reorganizing the provinces after 1380 because of some surprising political struggles in the capital so that there is not a straight line between the authorities of people operating in the territories. The province as a single bureaucratic unit doesn't exist after 1380. And instead, it can only be conceived at the intersection of overlapping bureaucratic units that are not contiguous with one another. And the objective of this is actually to keep provincial authorities from exercising the sort of centralized control over the territories that you would see in the Yuan dynasty. And the Qing will revert back to an approach to managing territories that does centralize bureaucratic authority in these contiguous administrative units. And I think that we have underestimated the impact that this set of decisions had on the way that the Ming and the Qing courts related to their own territories and to their own officials, not to mention, of course, the subjects of those empires. Mm, Great. Well, you kind of document the, you know, yeah, the construction of this uh, emergent system that you've just um, kind of outlined here in the in the first part of the book, uh, building the empire of routine, which you know step by step takes us through the kind of uh, the kind of institutional and uh, textual and uh, procedural construction of uh, how you how you run uh, an empire on this basis. Um, we've got there onto this question of you know the, the the central authorities and their relationship to, to localities and the lines of transmission um and it's i guess interesting in the context again of of 
understandings emerging understandings of Qing history uh, and the Qing Empire as a sort of in some ways a sort of patchwork entity one with uh, I guess again in very um, uh, maybe more broadly known uh, th sort of terms the differential modes of rule that Chen Long I guess is most famous for representing himself differently as a bodhisattva to the Tibetans and as a mounted horseback archer to the Manchus and Mongols and as a Confucian scholar to the Han and so on. But um, was there a kind of difference in how much the center wanted to know uh, over this period, uh, you know, over, over the course of the Qing? I mean, you say that many in many cases, the emperors and the, and the other people involved were not perceiving that they were changing things or that things were changing or that they kind of imagined themselves to be dealing with a stable state. Um, but uh, especially compared to, say, the pre-conquest uh, late Jin and Qing state, did, did, the, did the imperial center want to know a lot more than it, it, either it had previously? And how did that change over time, you know, during the course of the Qing? Does that make sense of the question? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, conceive of my answer specifically in terms of the evolution of the Qing state because I really don't have a lot of expertise in the pre-conquest dynasty. But I think that this question of evolving demands for information is illuminating in the context of the Qing uh, after the conquest of the Ming and is illuminating in comparing the Qing and the Ming. And I think that what I would say is that the Ming compared to the Qing and then the early Qing or the high Qing compared to later periods are periods in which bureaucratic and jurisdictional autonomy are derived from lacuna in the information regime of the central dynasty. So for example, Ming policies on commercial taxation Ming policies on population registration are extremely clear, and yet they vary widely from jurisdiction to jurisdiction because there's not a lot of reporting or enforcement happening on the ground. So you can have local behavior flaunting imperial policy as long as you just don't ask. And this is a, a way of maintaining some sort of equilibrium between local initiative and central prerogative. And in the Qing, as I think Dai Yingtong's work on the Western frontier and the role that the administration of Sichuan plays in defining that frontier is a perfect example of the extent to which a lot of early Qing imperial policies were based on willful not knowing. If you had a frontier region or a difficult region that you did not want to govern too closely. You wanted to allow local administrators a space for play and innovation. You would simply make a policy of not particularly knowing. And I think that we could use this, this question or this framework to really dig deeper into a lot of the ways that Qing imperial strategy evolved over time. And I would say that there is a marked change by the middle of the 19th century, the Qing state and all of its bureaucrats assumes now that all things should be known and should be communicated. And this is what we call the statecraft movement. And so I think there's a relationship 
between what we have heretofore conceived as an administrative trend towards technical forms of administration and a larger story of grand imperial strategy that's based on a distinction between what is known and what is not known in a context where, in theory, everything is decided by imperial mandate and decree. But you can give space for uh, innovation or adaptation within absolute imperial authority if you just don't ask something. And that space of not knowing has shrunk considerably by the time we reached the 19th century. Right. No, great. Well, one of the key steps in that um, that you document uh, is the transition in uh, the Kangxi era to uh, uh, basically some a combined means of managing uh, sort of uh, bureaucratic uh, activity and and, do- and a documentary regime, whilst also disciplining the people who are involved in that. Um, can you say something about how that was actually achieved? In the second chapter of the book, I examine the materials that, as a field, we tend to call legal cases. And we call them legal cases because these are memorials that are submitted for judgment by the three legal ministries on cases that pertain to capital punishment. And I happen to use materials from the Kangxi era because we have this wonderful magistrate manual that provides a formula for how to write these memorials. That's a useful, it's a useful source for me. But many of the the technologies that are discussed in that chapter are already in place in the Ming. I, I only wish that any of my colleagues in Ming history had been able to guide me to a Ming dynasty punishment memorial, because I would very much like to be able to illustrate what I presume to be the case, which is that these documents are fundamentally the same in the Ming as they are still in the Kangxi era. And what I would most like fellow historians of the Qing to understand about these documents is even though they bear on matters of law, and so it's fair to use them as sources to learn about the operation of an administrative justice system or a legal system. At the same time, they were also always documents that were intended to serve the purpose of bureaucratic supervision. And we're very lucky that recently Pierre-Etienne Ville has published this bibliography, which is about all of the magistrate handbooks and guidebooks of imperial history. And this source allows us to find in these magistrate manuals all sorts of advice about these sorts of materials. And what is very abundantly documented in these sources, which were very hard to access before the publication of this bibliography, is this conversation about the extent to which um, officials are interested in communicating some information about a crime or a local event but they are as much, if not more, preoccupied with communicating information about themselves. And this double function of what we have understood to be legal cases is extremely important in shaping both how we ought to treat them as historians and understanding the anxieties that the Qing had, because these documents were actually aimed for two distinct targets that were often in conflict with one another. The one is helping the central state understand exactly what's happening at the local level. And the other is helping the central state detect 
when officials were, were not being truthful about what was happening at the local level. So chapter two gets into some of the really technical but extremely important nuanced detail about the ways that the documents that the Qing Empire ran on always formed this sort of dual function. And this is something that Qing actors were very aware of, even if they weren't aware of some of the later information crises that I discuss in the book, Mm -hmm. there was an absolutely universal knowledge of the extent to which these documents were not simply conveying facts about local phenomena. Right, right. Well, I I guess, yeah, I mean, it's not maybe something that is there necessarily in the in the archive or in the material, but um, a lot of that process that, that you just outlined, it sounds, you know, it's, it, to be honest, sounds like a real hassle for like a lot of the people involved, you know, in terms of uh, what people were actually having to do and the kinds of processes that people were being becoming involved in. And, uh, you know, I guess, I mean, maybe I'm uh, overly projecting, but, uh, you know, working in uh, 21st century uh, Western University um uh, infrastructure it's uh you know th- th- there's a there's a level of piling on uh things that that can feel uh you know quite relatable i think uh, for some of these, <laughs> some of these it's people. very true i think to go back to your opening comments and then the conversation that we had about uncertainty there is a naivete with which many contemporary administrators approach the collection of information And those of us who are offering that information are aware (laughs) of the inanity or the mundanity or the absurdity of these methods of data collection. And yet still we're forced to provide all of these rationales and itemized sort of characterizations of our activities. And I think that the Qing was so well-practiced in this and was so already skeptical and concerned about the extent to which the collection of information impacts activity, the extent to which governing always comes with an observer effect. I think they have a more nuanced language for describing these problems than we do today. And I hope that people will learn from the Qing dynasty. Damn. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess uh, it, it didn't stop things coming though to uh, to a sort of head or a, the kind of crisis that you that you alluded to. And uh, as we move through, uh, you know, from from part one of the book uh, into into part two, you kind of see the the apotheosis, the, the kind of culmination of these processes uh, from from Yongzhong into into the long the long Chenlong. Uh, period which filled much of the sort of mid and latter parts of the 18th century um so kind of as we you know come uh, through the book and then eventually towards towards the conclusion i mean how what, what was the nature of the crisis i guess that this you know it, despite what you've mentioned was a, a level of sensitivity and awareness perhaps around the the observer effect and the you know the, the kind of on the ground consequences of, uh, of of dealing in text uh, what what was the crisis that kind of formed and, and how did it express itself I would say that the Qing bureaucracy's nuanced understanding of the problems of text prepared all of these actors already from a very early time to distrust text as a medium for the expression of lived experience. This is something that I would also say at least actors in the Ming dynasty are also aware of and very probably before, but I really can't say. The thing that's interesting about what happens in the Qing is that they figure out ways to start to collect information about phenomena at the local level 
and about the behaviors of their officials that are related to, but distinct from the channels of information that were already going up to the Capitol. So you have the same channels of information that I refer to as a part of the central review system that have already been in place since the Ming. But what you start to see happening over the Qing is the institution of new reporting and documentary regulations that allow the Qing to see that channel of information in the context of broader local information ecologies, which always had to exist in order for provinces to do their jobs. Prefects were always keeping records on county magistrates and judicial commissioners were always keeping records on both of those. But what the Qing manages to do is require these offices to generate information about their own information gathering practices. And so really what the administrative revolution is at the heart of it is by the time that the number of these independent and yet interrelated sources of information about local bureaucratic activity are connected to one another, which takes 100 years because they are distinct and it takes a long time for them to finally connect. What the Qing comes into possession of is really a set of tools or a bureaucratic machinery that's able to flag and locate sources of inconsistency internal to itself. That doesn't mean that the Qing is able to discover the truth. They're only able to discover inconsistency. But in a pre-modern imperial context where certainty is baked into the operation of the relationship between the territories and the central dynasty, these inconsistencies are what originally made the imperial framework operate. And so what we see is a dynasty becomes uniquely capable of sniffing out exactly the fictions upon which the seeming continuity and certainty of imperial rule used to appear to operate. And so the irony here is that the more that it asks, the closer it gets to one sort of truth, but the more it starts to undermine the fictional and yet pivotal, central, necessary truths of imperial rule. Yeah, well, yeah, no, that's uh, that's brilliant. It kind of it kind of looks itself in in the mirror and, uh, and doesn't 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 like what it sees somehow, uh, I guess, or you know, doesn't realize that that's why everyone liked it. Uh, you know that that. Uh, that that, that 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 is actually the whole thing. Um, well, that's great, um, Mara. I guess as a final kind of question to zoom us back out a little bit, and, and actually conveniently enough, you just uh, alluded to sort of pre-modern empire, and we discussed earlier the kind of move away from from uh, teleologies, historical kind of senses of, of modernization, and understanding these processes in uh, in, in in periodizations. Uh, often imposed or imported from elsewhere um and the story you tell is so you know in the thick of uh, activities in a in a you know in a, in a very ching detailed kind of uh, mode i just wonder how we are to see these kinds of processes uh, is there scope for comparison how does it affect our sense of periodization in general do we see this as you know in relation to kind of modernity or the kind of pre-modern modern sort of thing does does it make it impossible to fit into that rubric uh is it does does it make earlier periods of history in china discussable only in terms of imperial or does it 
does it revalidate the dynastic kind of historical mode? I mean, how do you how do you see it affecting a kind of broader scope of of history historical perspective? So part of that question is so big that it led to a second book project, which is also still a preface to publishing the local history that I wrote in my dissertation. So there are many parts of that that I will defer until our next our next conversation some years down the road. But I will say this. Many people since the publication of the book have wanted to ask me, so was there more corruption or not? <laughs> In the book, I make a very big deal out of not mistaking information for corruption about corruption itself. And frankly, I'm personally not deeply invested in measuring whether or not or when there was more or less corruption in the Qing. But one of the things that I realized about why this question is important is that the definition of corruption serves as one of the critical parameters of the political controversies that will eventually engulf the dynasty and lead to its downfall. That's not to say that this is the cause of the downfall of the Qing. In fact, I would put it uh, conversely. When the Qing eventually tears itself apart in revolution, that understanding of corruption and that understanding of why the dynasty failed is definitional to how later reformers and revolutionaries will conceive of what ought to be modern. And so in many ways, I think we can only understand the specific problems of modernity as they have been framed by the successor regimes to the Qing in the ways that the Qing was grappling with its own problems, much in the same way that I insisted earlier that if we're to understand the Qing, we have to understand how it learned from the Ming, what was wrong with itself. And so I think the thing that I would say is that uh, we, depending on what we study, we can always look for some sort of objective rubric or comparative basis for a modern moment. And I think that that sort of study is incredibly important. But I think what this particular book does is it reminds us that the problems of previous times will always frame the objectives of successor regimes. And I think that we cannot understand Chinese modernity without appreciating the relationship between the Qing dynasty's attempts to control its own officials and the corruption discourse that emerged from that and continued to define Chinese politics well after the fall of the dynasty. Great. Well, fantastic. Wow. Thank you so much uh, for that uh, yeah, encapsulation and uh, exhortation to understand things in their own terms, which is uh, also compatible with a sort of the an- kind of anthropological perspective that I, I also try to adhere to. Um, anyway, we've uh, taken up a good uh, chunk of your time today. Uh, but before we let you go, perhaps I could just ask, I mean, you may already have alluded to it, but uh, any current projects you have on the go, uh, what's come after this uh, excellent book? I've been lucky in my time to come across many, many questions that interest me. So thankfully, I I don't lack any current projects. The the book project right now will continue this history into the 19th century and down to the local level. So I will finally, when dealing with 19th century sources, be able to say a little bit about the evolution of documentary practices, 
archival politics and local administration in the 19th century. And I'm extremely excited for that because those are the materials that I really cut my teeth on as a dissertating historian. I also have a, a preoccupation, a sort of constant preoccupation right now with administrative accounting practices. And so I'm working on conceiving, conceptualizing, and describing the ways that imperial yamen at all levels accounted for the things that they were monitoring, supervising, and responsible for. So that's another sort of history of science, history of bureaucracy, paperwork-heavy project of mine. But also, you probably shouldn't be surprised if you see me dabbling in some seemingly completely unrelated space. I seem to have this sort of magpie's approach to historical research. Excellent. Well, uh, I think uh, that's uh, an admirable approach to take. And uh, yeah, as uh, as mentioned, we'll look forward to talking to you about uh, any number of them uh, in, in the future as and when they emerge. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Mara Dijkstra, thank you very much for appearing on the show today. It was uh, excellent talking to you. Thank you, Ed. It was a pleasure. Listeners, thank you too for listening uh, to New Books and East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, which will be back with you again very soon.